This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special Sunday morning mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips and here back from his marathon early morning run, Andrew Ram Page. How are you, buddy? Uh, it was an ocean swim this morning. Ocean swim. My, my apologies. <laughs> and you, Newcastle to Sydney or something? Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ocean swim marathon. This man clearly knows no bounds when it comes you know to it. physical fitness. All about pushing myself to the limit. <laughs> you, especially on Sunday morning. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, mate, uh, we had a great podcast on Friday, but I reckon we just get straight into the questions from our listeners. What do you reckon? Yeah, let's dive on in for All sure. Right. Uh, Rich sent his email and says, Scott and Ram, I have some questions for you from across the pond. But first, I want to thank you for the quality content you produce each and every week. I consider myself one of the diehards, good man, and I listen to every second of each Australian Motley Fool podcast. Motley Fool Money, The Mailbag, and The Good Oil. Thank you, mate. It's great to hear what is happening on the other side of the world to help round out my investing perspective. First question. If I were to start an online private investing club, what should I name it? <laughs> uh, not straw man because it's not obvious what it is then. So, <laughs> so go with something else. <laughs> I mean, you, you wouldn't make the mistake of naming something you couldn't obviously work out what it uh, was. That is a rookie error right there. So, from, from a local worker on the Motley Fool, I'm not throwing any stones in <laughs> little tiny foolish shaped glass house just quietly. Uh, but I love it, Rich. Thank you. Second Thank question. You. Thanks, Rich. The American Motley Fool Investing Podcast put the ticker symbols they mentioned in the show notes. But you guys don't currently. Is there a reason for that? Yes, Rich, because we just have never thought of it. And uh, it would require me keeping track of what we're actually talking about. So that, that was, that's probably it. Uh, mate, uh, yeah, absolutely no reason whatsoever, mate. We just, we just don't. Uh, granted, it only takes me an extra minute or two to look them up, but didn't know why they aren't listed. Mate, uh, so for what it's worth, we, uh, we actually, so Motley Fool in the US produce their own podcast internally. Uh, we do ours in consultation with listener. Uh, not that it matters, by the way, and that doesn't change us using tickers or not, or including them in the show notes. Uh, largely just there's no uh, single uh, production kind of process that we follow that's the same as the US guys. So it's not a, it wasn't a decision to do anything differently. Uh, we literally just started our own podcast down here with um, uh, former Phil now, unfortunately, Chris Hill, who, who's now left, but... Um, uh, with his absolute support and guidance and mentoring, which I will always appreciate. Uh, but yeah, we know we, we just started one from, from scratch down here, doing it our own way. Uh, as you can tell, we're not quite as polished as our American colleagues. Uh, we like to think that gives us a, a bit of a homely feel, a bit of an authentic feel, but uh, it's probably just we're lazy and not very well produced. So uh, yes, no, we, we, uh, we do it differently down here, but no reason we excluded it. It wasn't a conscious decision. We just never, never done it and didn't start and didn't occur to us to do it. So that's, that's specifically why. Third question from Rich. This is one for you, Ram. Bluey has become one of my kids' favorite shows. Do either of you have any plans to make a guest voice appearance on the show? <laughs> it's a great show. You know a Isn't good that? kids' show? I think the people are starting to work out that you you have to make it watchable for adults as well. <laughs> exactly. So our kids are a bit older now, but mm -hmm. I can tell you what, if I was ever able to push kids in a certain direction, it would be, <laughs> it, it would be away from things like In the Night Garden and... Mm -hmm. 
Teletubbies and stuff that, you know, maybe if you're on acid was interesting, but in all other respects, just made you want to rip your eyeballs out. Um, just something with Bluey has got lots of in-jokes and is very, very, uh, very cool. And, and a great Australian export, let me add too. It's um, uh, also very popular in the US and, and other parts of the world. And yeah, I can't imagine there's an invitation for us anytime soon, but I wouldn't <laughs> say no if it was offered. I really appreciate the fact Rich thinks we are even slightly on the periphery of the outside of the distant, distant galaxy that is the bluey creators universe they, yeah. they don't even know we exist rich no. i know I, I i find that hard to believe i know you find it hard to believe uh, apparently it's true uh we are not required listening in the bluey uh writer's room uh yet I, i'm sure hopefully at some day they will they will come around to it but uh when they do rich uh we will well we'll, we'll <laughs> frankly if we ever get invited to do a guest uh, voice appearance on bluey we will be letting our listeners know let me, let me we're not going to keep that we're not hide that under a bushel we are very much going to make sure we can uh, we can get that get that through. <laughs> is that the question? Was there any, any no, 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 that, no, that was the question. That's a softball softball way to yeah, start the episode. He well, yeah, I had to start it with the episode. I had to start that with the episode because he asked about Stroy being a private online investment. Fair so enough. he asking the question. You're only here. as you as you know, Ram. I'm mm-hmm. I uh, only only will give up on that if someone else asked the question instead of me. And uh, in this case, they did. <laughs> so uh, I was we're, we're we're in good good company. Fair enough. Thank you. Uh, mate, let's go to a question from Martin who says, Hi, Scott and Andrew. I've been a dedicated follower of your podcast for quite some time. And I must say, your show has become a staple for making my Fridays and Sundays both informative and entertaining. Thanks for the great work. Thank you, mate. Now, let's dive into the heart of the matter, says Martin. Somewhat uh, uh, provocatively, maybe maybe a little, uh, we should be warned. Andrew. Could you please break down what exactly constitutes a, quotes chicken little economy, end quote? Is it all about financial markets running around like headless chickens, squawking about the sky falling? I'm trying to rem- desperately remember how I've used that phrase in the past and may well have done it um, improperly, but <laughs> so I'm, no. I, yeah, it's, well- I assume that I sort of meant it in the sense that there are always and at all times uh, people calling for things yes. to collapse. And yep. um, we actually touched on this on Friday, more than touched mm. on it, in fact. And it's one of those things where, well, by definition, when it happens, they'll be right in the same way that a broken clock is right. Mm. So I guess it's, it's what do you do with that? I, I feel as though... I read a lot of doom and gloom kind of stuff because I just read a lot of stuff on, on the markets. And it's, it is, that's the, the negative stuff's always more compelling. Mm-hmm. It, the, the article that says all is well, uh, I'm not going to go out of my way <laughs> yeah. to click on it. The one that, that says, Isn't that human nature though? Yeah. The one that says run for cover, you know, yeah. is like, oh, maybe I need to read that. Mm-hmm. And, and they're usually pretty reasonable sounding. Yeah. Um, so, but I, I, at the same time, I guess you've just got to you've just got to keep in mind that more often than not, these predictions are wrong. Um, it's just as equally wrong to dismiss anything negative out of hand as well, right? Like, no, nah, it's been I'm not going to la 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 fingers in the ears. Everything is fine. I, I think you you want to try and sort of take it mm. seriously and and um, absorb it and think it through. Um, but just. Just recognize that, well, statistically and historically, it's they're, they're, they're usually wrong. And then, and then what's more interesting to me is that you can have scenarios, again, we, we really dug into this on Friday, where you can, these, these prognostications can be correct, 
but it still doesn't mean that you do anything differently. Um, we were talking about the horrible scenario in the Middle East at the moment and, you know, all the tragedy that's unfolding there and, and the rest of it, you know, it's like, does that, does that mean all of a sudden I pivot to some kind of different investment style or I sell everything? I, I don't think so. And there's probably someone a week before all this happened calling for this and, oh, this is, this is imminent, you know, and, and yet markets went up in response to it. So I, I guess it's, it's sort of, you know, what do you do, mate? Well, how, how, do, you, how do you approach all the chicken little stuff? You're, you're far more optimistic than I am as a, as a person. <laughs> probably sleep a lot better at night as a result, but what, I think what's I your take? I probably do. Uh, mate, mate, you know what? The thing, about, the thing about optimism is maybe it's just complete Pollyanna and, and as long as I believe it, maybe it's true. So that's why I sleep better at night, whether it's real or not is a, is a whole different question. Um, it's a really good, really good question. I think for me, the chicken little stuff, it's, it's separating the, you mentioned on Friday, and we're kind of referring back to Friday. So hopefully our listeners have, have checked out that podcast. The, the, the broken clock, right? The, the, if, you, if you spend 20 years saying something's going to go wrong and it finally does, it doesn't make you right. That's the chicken littles, right? Yeah, being, being say, early is the same as being wrong is the old saying. But it's also being consistently negative is the same as being wrong because you're going to be, you know, uh, if you're right once every 20 years, eventually you're right. And, you know, you were right yesterday, you'll be right tomorrow, and then not again for 20 years. That's that's a long time to, to wait. Uh, that That's my issue with the chicken little stuff is is it... I feel sorry for people who are deeply pessimistic all the time. I don't... It must be just a crappy life. If you can only see the stuff that's going wrong, could go wrong, will go wrong, did go wrong, uh, and you miss the other stuff. I think it's. A, I just think it's a shame. I think it's because I, I, I don't think it's accurate, and I don't think it's the majority of experience, and I don't think it's a great way to live. It must be really miserable. Um, so I think yeah, it would. It would. It would be just as bad being me, being a Pollyanna, always optimist, if that wasn't how what history suggested is, has been the most likely outcome, and I think will be the most likely outcome for years to come. I think it's. You know, I like to believe, and my, my general optimism thing is kind of this, right? The market goes up two years out of three. The market has gone up consistently for more than a, more than 120 years since kind of modern records were kept in the 1900s. The economy has grown since the Industrial Revolution pretty consistently. We have made advances in health and science and standard of livings have increased dramatically over that period of time. I think if you can see that and not and, and then somehow only see doom and gloom in, in that context, I think you're missing the bigger picture. So... My, my starting point is I think the trend of history is likely to continue. I think there are real reasons to believe humans want to make things better. I think it's embedded in our DNA. And so my optimism doesn't come because I'm just an optimist because, you know, um, separate to the circumstances, I'd like to think, and again, maybe we Friday, I'm fooling myself. If you look at that and say, how could you see that 120 years of progress and they 200 years before that and say, yeah, no, it's probably pretty crap and it's going to get worse. Mm. I just think that's a, I think it's a really difficult argument to make objectively. Now, once you get into these rabbit holes, it gets really dark real fast. And so I don't, you know, some people really, old, they start with well, maybe something. And then all of a sudden, if you, if you look for reinforcing information, all you do read is the doom and gloomers and, you know, that, that's your steady diet. Like with every, frankly, social media these days with the rabbit holes and the, the echo chambers, uh, you'll find exactly what you're looking for. And if you're looking for it, then you'll find it. And, and that becomes its own self-perpetuating mechanism. Uh, so I think the chicken littles are the ones who, without real substance to their argument or recognizing the good stuff as well, or to Ram's point, the, the, the monotonous forever, you know, sky's falling, sky's falling forever and ever, they're the ones to ignore. 
And that, that's probably how I'd, how I'd look at it. Can I give you, it actually reminded me of a thread someone sent me throughout mm. the week, um, uh, just talking about how things have changed. And, and there's always mm. suffering and injustice in the mm. world, unfortunately, mm. and things don't improve in a straight line. So, you know, things can take sort of a bit of a case of two steps forward, one step backwards. Mm. But there was this wonderful chart here of um, the share of the global workforce in extreme poverty. In the year yeah. 2000, it was 26%. And in the year 2022, it's 6.4%. That's now, extraordinary. 6.4% of the global working age population in extreme poverty is a tragedy, right? Like that is yeah. yes. that is 6% yes. too many. Correct. And Correct. horrible conditions are suffered from people in all kinds of parts of the world. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an improvement and it's a significant improvement. The other part of the thread they were talking about child labor, 245 million children, child labor, child laborers in 2000, that was reduced to 160 million. 160 million kids are, I mean, that is a tragedy. Uh, and it's actually up a little bit on 2017, but but directionally that is that is improving. Um, and it goes on and, and so on and so forth. There's a, there's a website called um, humanprogress.org, which is just, okay. it's good for someone like me because it can remind you when you look at the bigger arc of things, it's like, yeah, yeah things yeah. are getting better. It's so important, mate. And I have to read this quote from Bono because this surprised me. So Bono, <laughs> on. Bono of U2 fame, right? Okay. So he's a, he's a bit of an uh, environmental warrior. Um, he's a, a, a social justice warrior. And I love him for it, right? Like, I wish there were more people that were that sort of mm. dedicated their lives to so whatever you think of Bono, if, right? At least he's right quote the right is, place. Uh, I can't live with or without you. <laughs> no, I'm not that clever. Not that clever. Uh, but I wish I'd thought of that. He still hasn't found what he's looking for? Well, no. Oh, God, it okay. just, yeah, it writes itself. <laughs> it's not too long ago. I read it out, but I just, okay. I just thought. It just it actually, he's, he went up in my estimation quite a bit. Um, mm. I ended up as an activist in a very different place from where I started. I thought that if we just re redistributed resources that we could solve every problem. I now know that that's not true. There's a funny moment when you realize that as an activist, the off-ramp out of extreme poverty is commerce. It's entrepreneurial mm. capitalism. Globalization has brought more people out of poverty than any other ism. And that's from Bono, right? <laughs> and, yeah, exactly. And I was like, and, and I, I think I think it's actually a, a sign of great intelligence. It's too easy mm. to sort of we've talked about this before, where it's like capitalism is such a loaded term. And I think a lot of people hate it for the right reasons, but would define oh, it differently than, than yeah. others might define it. You know, so mm. like we've talked before about crony capitalism and corruption, all these are they're horrible things and they need to be stamped out. But the general idea of just trade and the mutual beneficial arrangement that that provides. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the globalization. So there was a big report in 2000 from Stiglitz. It's actually the start of this thread saying that we must avoid globalization because it will lead to increased poverty, increased child labor, increased pollution and lower living standards globally. And the exact opposite had happened. And these, these were smart PhDs in economics and, and sociology. Mm. And the exact opposite has happened. And again, not in an even line, not not in the way or as fast as we would need it to be. And another part of that was too, is they found that the richer the country uh, 
well, trade was a big part of enriching a country, but also the richer the country, the more that they put towards environmental reforms and that. So, so people who are desperate don't really give a stuff about the environment. And why would you, you right? Like, well, frankly, you, you do give a stuff, but you just can't, you can't afford to give that stuff. You can't afford to act on it. Because- dude, I want to eat tonight, right? right? Yeah. Like I love the whales and the polar bears and that too, but I, frankly, I'm, I'm hungry and my mm-hmm. kid's crying and sick. So I don't really yeah. give a stuff right now. And so it's just, it is, you know, we're all richer yeah. when we're all richer, <laughs> I suppose, is the way, way of saying it. So true, it. mate. So anyway, it's a great thread and it just, it does, it does just maybe worth just sort of saying, given all the, the terrible things happening right now. Mm. Let's um, move to another question from Martin, who says, now shifting gears to long-term US Treasury bonds. It's a big shift. Oh, I love this. Yep. What's all the fuss about, he says. What's the scoop on their influence on the economy and markets? their recent underperformance, and why are they suddenly emerging as an attractive investment opportunity with their discounted prices and the anticipation of rate cuts in the US? Oh, and don't forget to unravel the mystery of the yield curve and how it relates to these long-term bonds. I'll get back to it, mate, but I'll just say, he then goes on to say, I'm asking because amid the cacophony of financial information out there, I've noticed a growing number of investors gravitating towards the iShares TLT ETF, which I assume is a bond ETF. Now, I understand you guys aren't officially dispensing financial advice, but I'm genuinely curious. Is this ETF a smart move for diving into long-term US Treasury bonds, especially with the scent of a potential recession and rate cuts in the air? But here's the kicker. This ETF is as American as apple pie. Do you have an Alvin Australian equivalent ETF that might simplify matters for us while we invest from down under? Your insights are, gen- are greatly appreciated. I eagerly await another episode of your fantastic show. Scott, just a gentle reminder, if you could ease up on the accelerator, my non-native English ears would greatly appreciate it and I hate to miss any of the good stuff. <laughs> and Andrew, I'm eagerly awaiting one of your famous economy monologues. They're like the Shakespearean soliloquies of finance. <laughs> Full on. Talk about over egging the pudding. Oh, hasn't he? What? <laughs> anyway, uh, bonds, mate. Why do we care? What's all the fuss about? In I, words? I don't know where to start, Mark. I mean, that is, <laughs> that is one of the biggest questions we've ever been asked. And I think to do it justice, you and I would probably need to get together and do two hour uh, episode every week for the next six weeks. <laughs> So, no one listened to it. No one listened to it. <laughs> let's do the let's do the, uh, the the shortened ten minute version, mate. I mean, on one hand, bonds are the easiest thing in the world to understand. It's just mm. an IOU. Give us some money. We'll pay you back at the end of the term, and mm. we'll pay you some interest payments along the way. We call them coupon payments. It's super easy, right? Like, how how easy is that? Um, here you go, Australian government. It's a thousand bucks. Give it back to me in the year twenty thirty three. And uh, each year, I want you to pay me the equivalent mm. of three and a half percent. It's super, and, and it's the government, right? And in the case of the U.S. Treasuries, it's the U.S. government, so it's guaranteed because they will always pay, uh, even if they completely bankrupt. They'll just print the money, and they will pay you. Um, so you're going to get it. You're going to get it back, and it's considered risk-free uh, for that for that very reason. Um, where it gets complicated is that. It's sort of because it is the risk-free rate. Now, we could unpack that a lot too and take issue (laughs) with that, but let's not go there. Um, It kind of sets everything. It's the the foundation for everything. If if bond yields go up, put it this way. If I can lend to the US government, the safest counterparty in the world, again, according to to established doctrine, and get a 5%, or let's be silly, give you a 10% return, 
Mm-hmm. Why would I invest in the share market, which is on average over time giving me a 10% return? I've got all the volatility, all the risk, all the uncertainty, mm-hmm. and I've got basically risk-free. So I would only invest in shares if I could get that 10% plus sum, what, what, what they call um, an equity premium. I just need more. If I'm going to lend Scott money or I'm going to lend a complete stranger on the street who's living in a cardboard box money, I mean, I'm going to lend it to Scott despite his you know, questionable credit worthiness <laughs> because he's just going to be a safer bet, right? Mm-hmm. So so it's super, super important. Yep. Um, uh, so why is, it a, why is it a big deal that it's falling? Well, it's the market. Now, the market could be wrong, right? But, but the market is saying, oh, we, you need to offer me a higher yield, right? Because- I see that there are risks on the on the horizon. I'm I'm nervous. I am not. I may have been happy to lend to you at one percent a couple of years ago. You know, you still got a structural deficit here. Mm. There's uh, all kinds of storm clouds on the horizon. I feel nervous, and so I'm going to demand a higher a higher yield to compensate mm. me for for that. Now, maybe they're wrong. Maybe things go perfectly good for me. Traditionally, the bond market hasn't been terrible at it. And then we can get into things like inverted yield curves. But before we do, mate, anything you'd you'd add to any of that? No, you've done a really good job, mate. I think I, I, I'll just for the sake of a couple of thought bubbles. Firstly, when you think about bonds, think about them as term deposits that go to the government rather than rather than a bank. And Andrew's right to say you are lending the government money and they are paying you to borrow that money from you. I just I guess I wanted to make it just a little bit simpler for some of our listeners who don't are familiar with the financial like chicanery. Lending money to the government feels weird. Uh, it is, but by the way, if you term deposit, you're lending money to the bank, so it's exactly the same thing. But we yeah. kind of consider it a a deposit with a with an interest rate. Uh, in the bond world, they call it a yield. Uh, there's all that sort of stuff. That goes your savings. So I just make one quick point. Your savings account is a loan to the bank. Correct, and that's, that's what I'm saying. Yes, yep. exactly. But not, I, not even I, a term deposit. The, yeah. Correct. Yeah. Sorry, you're right. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but I just want to put it in that context for people who, who are thinking. So this is a, a term deposit with the government uh, where you say, I'll give you 100 bucks, you'll give me 3% a year uh, for, a, for a fixed term. And at that point, the term, the bond is redeemed and they send you your money back. And in theory, you're all sweet. There are different types of bonds, by the way. We're not getting any of those things. Uh, so they're government bonds, they're treasury bonds. So in the, in the UK, they're called gilts because they were gilt edged, literally gold edged certificates. Uh, in the U.S., they're called treasuries because they're treasury bonds. The U.S. Treasury is the is the entity. In Australia, they're called government bonds. No, I mean, they're all called government bonds, but just if you hear those terms, sometimes they're interchangeable, sometimes they're not. So just so our listeners know if they hear that stuff. Um, I think yeah. I mean, other than that, that's 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 really all it is. A question of you know how much do I how much do I want? What risk do I am I prepared to take? Um, and you're right about the risk-free rate. Uh, you'll heard the risk-free rate used in some uh, discounted cash flow analysis and other things. As Andrew talked about, the risk premium or the equity premium are important. Um, it's risk-free for two reasons. One is the government can print more. The other thing is that the, the assumption is simply that there is no, there's no one safer than the US government. Now, frankly, with the more US government debt there is, maybe a Berkshire Hathaway bond should be considered risk-free and, and you can worry about it after that, right? So yep. uh, the, the how risk-free they actually not, are. Not that Berkshire has bonds, right? Because right, correct. they well, don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's always the point too. Uh, at one point, the Australian government actually paid off all its bonds. Yeah. 
uh, you know, it wasn't that long ago under, under the Howard government. In 20, uh, it must have been so five, six, somewhere ago, I suppose. Thank, thank you, been. mining boom. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, anyway. just, I just have to make sure we give appropriate credit to where it's deserved. You know, any, yeah, any, totally. any Muppet could have been sitting in the seat and they would have managed oh, to Oh, sorry, that. sorry. Yeah. I, under the Howard government, I didn't, I didn't mean the Howard government, didn't think special. Yeah, yeah, right, it, was right, just, right. it was that, it was in that term get, of government. Get political I remember for when a was. second. Yeah. Yeah, no, fair. fair. <laughs> uh, by the way, they wasted the mining boom far more than just uh, paying off the government bonds. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other conversation. Anyway, um, Let's, let's can I, can I, so that was yeah, go, sorry. Sorry, I thought you uh, finish, finish your thought. I was just going to add one. No, that's it. I was going to say you take over and keep going. Well, one more one important context here. The way that we've sort of laid it out here is we've really just talked about the primary bond market um, as opposed to the secondary market. Uh, so what's that mean? That means when they issue when when the when the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury Department says we're issuing the bonds, they're brand new. Here you go. Do you want them or do you not want them? Now, don't forget. They're doing this while there are trillions of dollars of existing bonds that are out there. That is, I've bought, maybe last year, someone bought a bond at a, mm. at a given yield. Now, why would, so we, we've seen long-term bonds fall precipitously, in fact. In fact, we've actually, it's, it's the biggest thing that no one's talking about in investing. Well, not many people, but it, it it is huge. So why are, why have bond prices fall now? Now we're talking about the secondary market. So I've already got my bond. It's sitting in my portfolio. Somewhere. Yeah, this is where it gets complicated. Yeah, this is where it gets complicated. So I want to sell that. Maybe I don't want to hold it to maturity. Here's the crazy mm-hmm. thing: most people don't hold it to maturity, right? Yeah. So so I, I've got it there, but I, my intention is I want to sell it at some point, mm-hmm. or I can maybe mm-hmm. I want to go down the rabbit hole. Maybe I can use a reverse repo facility from the Fed Reserve and lend to get use that as collateral to bond against uh, to, okay. to borrow I, with the etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, okay, but I'll, I'll back I'll back off. I'll back off. <laughs> Thank you. It's a deep rabbit this hole. It's a timid version. Yeah, exactly. I'm gonna say people think Bitcoin is complicated. Like no. Nah. <laughs> You understand the global monetary system and, uh, and let me know how you go because I'm not going to pretend to fully understand it. But, but, but my point is, is that if I can get a fresh bond right now, it's just been issued that is offering me a 5% yield. I'm not going to be able to sell someone another yield that's offering a 2% yield. I'm not going to be able to flip that across. I'm not going to be able to lend against that at the face value. Right. The only way that that makes sense in any open mm. rational market is for the price to fall. Because obviously when the price falls, mm-hmm. so the coupon rate, the amount that the interest that it's paying out is unchanged. Mm-hmm. So if the price of the bond falls, the yield rises and will always tend to sort of go with what, what is being freshly sort of issued that, that's sort of out there. Well, Think opportunity it, costs, right? No, yeah. no, one would buy, no one would buy a $100 bond paying 2%. If they could buy a hundred dollar bond from the government paying five percent, so you you couldn't you couldn't sell it for that price. Can't sell it. I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna really quickly, mate, just define the terms that you're talking about as, as you're talking. You're doing a great job. The so why does the price fall? If you if you take out imagine think about a term deposit. You have a term deposit with the Australian government, and it's paying you two percent a year. And you had a five year term deposit. You bought it a couple of years ago, so it's year two or five, whatever it is, and it's paying you two percent. Now you can invest $100 at 5% we just talked about. So you could you could do fresh money for that. But also think about what what is the what is the fair value of that $100 bond. Now you're going to get your money back at the end of the term, so it's it's worth something. But in the meantime, if you if you're comparing the two, you say, "Well, hang on, if I could if I could invest $100 and get a 5% yield, then the alternative if I if I want to sell my bond, I'd have to sell at a price that gives the buyer roughly equivalent yield mm-hmm. now it pays two dollars a year so it's a hundred dollar bond two percent pays two dollars a year so what has to happen well if you want someone to buy that from you you've got to discount the price so they get five percent so you're still getting two dollars a year 
But instead of paying 100 bucks, they're going to pay, and I don't know what the numbers are on that one. It's probably 40 bucks. That's about 50 bucks. There you go. Yep. 40 bucks. So you would, if you, now, you get a, there's a redemption. You can redeem that at the end of the term. So it's not only worth 40 bucks because there's a, there's a trade off in terms of you get the $100 back. But you would pay less for a, for a bond that was giving you $2 a year than you would for a bond paying $5 a year. And that's why mm-hmm. the bond price falls and the effective yield, even though it's still 2% on a face value of 100 bucks. It falls to allow for the fact that you, the person buying it wants an equivalent level of income. So you've got to sell it to them for less on that purpose. On that this, process, sorry. this is why I, I, I cringe a little bit when I hear people say risk-free because that uh, look at Silicon Valley Bank earlier this year. Mm-hmm. They had a, a, an excess of deposits. They didn't have anywhere that they, 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 they couldn't lend enough out to people who wanted to borrow for business or buy a house and have a mortgage and that. So they said, oh, let's just park it in bonds, risk-free. Now the bond market collapsed, and and so so did all of the the the, the backing for the, for the for the liability they had, which mm. was to pay back customers, which is fine until everyone gets a whiff of it and decides <laughs> they want their money back. It's like well, we don't have it, right? Um, and this is what this is fascinating because that problem really hasn't gone away. Is that uh, there's a lot of banks that have that have done that, and there's accounting tricks around this. We talked about it a little bit at the time, but it's basically mm-hmm. there are those that are held to maturity and those that are called um, AFS, available for sale. Available for sale, you have to mark to market, so you even might might have a certain face values, like you've got to say what it's worth currently on markets. But the ones held to maturity, HTMs, don't. But it, but the reality is, and the, the Federal Reserve had to put emergency procedures in place. Again, it's just sort of this big thing that just going to whiz by and run, oh, turns out it's not a problem. Or is it? I don't know. I, I'm still trying to work that one out. But if, if, <laughs> if you, if these, these banks are technically insolvent, if you mark to market all of their, and, I, and I'm talking about some very substantial proportion of, 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 of US banks. I know that sounds yeah. really hyperbolic and we're speaking about Chicken Little <laughs> and stuff before, but it's literally, it is literally true. It's just not a problem if no one thinks it's a problem, which yep. which is the turtles on turtles kind of thing here when you start talking about global finance. And it, it is all just a big system of trust. And I- We have to talk about this. Oh, sorry. We have to talk about this before. I, I, I have a different view to you because there's no need to mark those to market for their own sake. Uh, you know, Unless it, people want their money of, back because then correct, they have to sell yes. it. Yeah. Correct. Correct. And that's, that, and that's the, and which is why, and this is, it's funny, you know, tr- trust is both a bug and a feature of banking. You know, people don't need their money back unless they think they, they're going to have to get it back because there might be a bank run. That's why bank runs are so horribly, and it gets back to bailouts and a whole, all, it's, a, it's a very, very, speaking of turtles all the way down and, yep. and, and rabbit holes. Um, but yes, that, that's, and that's why, so yeah, to the point of a treasury bond, that's why we're talking a lot about them. That's why people are talking about them more broadly. You should also know the bond market is, is multiples the size of the equity markets. Huge. So we spend a lot of time talking about share prices. The... Think, think, about this, think about the size of, of government debts around the world, then add company debts around the world. That's why it's so much bigger than the share market. There's just a, a much, much, much bigger market for bonds and they're more, um, they're more consequential. Um, mate, uh, we have to do- Martin's- Oh, sorry. Go on. I, I was just, I, no. But we got to get to the, what do I invest in this ETF? But we, we also have to do the inverted yield curve. Yes. Do you, you want to have so- a crack at that? That's a big one. So, well, I first I want to say, so Martin's asked, why are they suddenly emerging an attractive investment opportunity with the discounted prices and the anticipation of rate cuts in the US? Um, the bottom line would be, they're not more attractive because the, the prices are being dropped. They are as attractive as the new, mm. newly minted bonds. So I, just would, I think we made that point, just to address that directly. Anticipation of rate cuts kind of comes down to locking in 
a benefit, right? Because Andrew's already said that as interest rates go uh, up, existing bond prices fall. The reverse will be true if rates, if and when rates get cut at some point, the existing bonds will become more more valuable. The face value will be more valuable because you want a you, you, the, the the fair value is lower, the yield is lower, and therefore it goes the other way. So that's why we're seeing movements. They they the price of a bond is effectively um, inversely proportional to the return, the, the the yield or the the interest rate, right? So that's that's what's going on there. Um, if you're an investor who wants to lock in a higher rate and you think rates are going to fall, then you would scramble for locking in as much money as you can. Again, think about mortgages in this case. Why do people lock in a fixed rate at 2% you know, three years ago? Because they expected the prices that interest rates would rise. Uh, you would try and get out of a fixed rate if you could at, at the current rate, 6.5%, if you knew that prices were going to fall or thought rates were going to fall. So it's kind of the same, the same way. It, with bonds, if you are... Well, take term deposits, right? If you thought, hang on, I can get a turn deposit now for four and a half, five percent whatever they're going for. If I could lock that in before rates fall, then I would do that. And so it's, it's kind of the same thing going on. Mm. Now, inverted yield curve, mate, all yours. Gosh. So all you do is you plot out, you, you have a chart um, on the x-axis along the horizontal, you have the different mm-hmm. maturities. So you might start at three months six month, one year, three year, five year, 10 year, 30 year. Different, these are you know, bonds that will, re, it will mature in 30 years and in various timeframes. And on the y-axis, you, you plot the yield that they're going for on the open market. Mm-hmm. Now in a quote unquote normal world, that <laughs> chart slopes up and to the right, which makes and sense. why is that? Well, you go. if I'm gonna lend you 10 bucks mm-hmm. and you say, I'll pay you back later on this afternoon, I don't need much compensation, right? I, I, I don't have my 10 bucks for, for a little while. If you say, oh, give me 10 bucks, I'm going to pay you back in the year uh, 2053. <laughs> well, can I have some, I need some compensation there, right? In a, in a normal world, the longer I'm lending someone money, the more compensation I want because yes. A, I don't have the money and there's an opportunity cost and B, yeah. there's more there's more time for things to go wrong. You know, it's ris- it's a riskier bet to lend The longer someone- my money's locked up for the, the yeah, exactly. The more it's- I want to be compensated for the risk I'm taking. Makes sense. An inverted yield yeah. curve, which we have at Just the moment- Just before you do that, actually, I want, yep. to, I want to be very quickly. What we're not saying though is- each of those numbers is plotted on a per annum curve, not total amount. Obviously, you get yep. more interest over 30 years oh, yes. over one day. Yes. So we're not saying you get more money over that period of time. We're saying the the per annum interest rate, even so a one-day loan has a per annum interest rate. It just happens to be, even if it's 10%, the, the actual rate over the, over one day is probably 0.3 of a percent. But so it's, it's the annual interest rate is up and to the right over that time period. Even if they're less than a year, these things are still expressed in per annum interest rates or per annum yields. And so the percentage per annum still goes up over that time for the reasons we've just said. I just want to be clear about that, mate, so people weren't thinking good about point. the amount of money received. Very good point. It's the, it's the per annum interest rate. Go on. Yeah. yeah. And I, look, I'd actually, frankly, encourage a bit of Googling here. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll go down a rabbit hole or, or not. Yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> I think you've got to spare a couple of hours to Because it is a spare couple of years. Like, honestly, <laughs> I'll, I'll let you know when I hit the bottom, right? Like, it hasn't <laughs> happened nice. yet. Um, uh, so, but an inverted yield curve is when I'm actually, I'm getting compensated less for the mm-hmm. longer term. And, and, and mm-hmm. it, what it does is it reflects the market, quote unquote, the market's view on the future. They feel mm-hmm. as though a recession is coming, interest rates are going to be lowered in the future. Right. And if interest rates are going to be lower in the future, and let's remember here, I mean, Australians, we love, oh, wouldn't it be great if interest rates are lower? I was like, well, interest <laughs> rates are only lowered 
when the economy mm-hmm. needs stimulating mm-hmm. and things are in bad shape, right? So we've got to be careful. We, we've got to be careful what we wish for, you know. Yeah. Anyway, so but 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 so it's reflecting that view now. How accurate is that? Uh, there's no such thing as a as a any perfectly reliable forecast. It turns out that on average, over time, it's been more right than it's been wrong. Mm. Generally, it will never tell you the degree of the recession and it won't tell you the timing of the recession. And it can flash red. I mean, the, the, the yield curve has been inverted in the US for, gosh, I want to say two years or something now, like a long time. Mm. It's like still not in recession. <laughs> so, and, and maybe won't, you know, um, yeah. but, that's what, but, it, but that's what it's signaling. And, and that is usually a, a, a reason to be bearish. And a lot of people have, have jumped on that as, as a reason to be bearish. Yeah, but I do. Nice do I mean, it's you can go deeper, but yep. no, that did a great job. Yeah. Did a great job. Um, I don't think, and again, you know, it's it's markets. People who people who live in markets are mathematically minded, generally speaking. Um, I've said before, investing is at least as much art and science, uh, rather than you know the economy. Economics broadly over the last fifty years has become a, a econometric. Uh, to use the, the phrase, uh, exercise, endeavor. Uh, it's actually improving, going back to more behavioral, psychological uh, approaches, because it it's, the, it's the way humans behave. It's what, that's what, you know, we use money as the marker, but it's the state of how humans behave. And we've, once we got computers, people think, well, if I could put the model in the computer, I can make it work. And then what happens is stuff that can't be put in a, you know, a model then gets discarded because they should just leave it out. Physics, so you say, economists you know, had physics envy is what they did. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. And, and I get it, right? You, you would want to be able to say, if we could come up with a formula, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. Yes, it would. It would absolutely be great. Can you? No. No. Didn't stop them. They just went, well, let's assume that the, what economics do it, uh, all else being equal. Ceteris <laughs> paribus, as I know from my, my high school. And that's what they did. They literally said, all things being equal, this would happen. And they're absolutely 100% right. Except that all things never equal, so it's it's relatively useless. Nice way to nice way to conceptualize an economy. Well, they the the the, the benefit the breakthrough was here's some ways of thinking about the economy. Here's some models, so that can help inform your thinking when you start to think about some of the inputs and outputs and some of the impacts and uh, phenomena. Really useful. Can I can I say just, the, 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 the quote on. there is um, you you might remember who said it. Um, all Jeffy models Morgan. are wrong. Yes. Some models are useful. Yeah, that's right. That's and I right. love it. I love it. And I think I think that's all a little bit too cynical. I think almost all models are useful in some way, but but they require understanding them, then putting them aside when you try and look at the real world and say, okay, now what do I think? And that's where the the um, behavioral finance, the Kahneman Tversky's work is is just phenomenally great. Richard Thaler, who won a Nobel, uh, is great. So you know, t- take the models as, as it's a bit like we've talked before about investing, mate. You, we all start with calculating ratios, right? It's exactly that, mm. and you kind of go, okay, now I know that you can't do it without it. You kind of need to know the concept of a DCF, right? Because it helps you think about pricing. And then you put it aside and go, okay, I can use that subconsciously and now look at the stuff that actually matters. <laughs> and yep. that's that's the key. Yep. Anyway, uh, the reason I say that is because the inverted yield curve thing is only is it it's only decades old, I think, from memory. Like it's in terms of in terms of our ability to use that to, to so called It's not a big equate, data set in the grand scheme right? of things. Like maybe so it goes back eight years recession. or something. Yeah. Or, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And so there's probably been what eight, nine recessions over that period. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not saying it's not relevant. I'm just saying take it with a massive grain of salt because there's no, there's no reason why it needs to be the case. That being said, the reverse is also true. Why would rates go down from a high point? Well, probably because either the, the, the uh, central banks have done their job and slowed the economy, so they were pretty let off the, let off the brakes, or they've let off the brakes because the economy's in trouble. So it absolutely makes sense. And again, why would a, why would a future yield be lower 
Ram's right. We want to be compensated more highly for the money we're giving up. So that's absolutely true. But on top of that, if the, the prevailing rate's going to be lower from the central bank in, in five years rather than three years, mm-hmm. well, okay, knowing that, you, would, you don't need as high a return because the risk rate is now lower. And so that's why that, that yield curve gets inverted. It's a market betting on what the central banks will do in the future. That's what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And the, the assumption goes, if there is a recession, then the central bank will cut. Therefore, I can price my bonds or have, have a lower yield, lower interest rate on those bonds at that future point. So that's mm-hmm. why they do it. I am entirely disinterested in uh, what the bond markets think are going to happen because no one predicted COVID, no one predicted X, Y, you know, th- these, they're not particularly predictive. They are, to some degree, again, on a trend basis, as I've just explained, not surprising, but it's almost one of those, yeah, no, whatever, Sherlock, right? You know, if, if rates are, if rates hit a peak and then go down, hitting the peak will slow the economy, which is what they're designed to do. Surprise, surprise. We mentioned on Friday, the IMF saying the economy is going to grow in Australia at 1.2% per year. Okay. Well, next year, sorry. Okay, great. We know that. Is there a chance of a recession? Yeah. Even if there's not a recession, will rates be lower if that happens? If inflation is brought under control and economic growth is weak, any central bank would say, we don't need to have rates as, uh, as restrictive as they are now. So if they lower rates, even without a recession, you should have an inverted yield curve for exactly the same reasons. So it's, you know, it's, it may well be predictive. It may well be correlative. Can I say that? Not really. Correlated. <laughs> um, Correlated. Uh, yeah, but there's, yeah, I, I don't, I, I personally have put no store in it. Um, it makes a, a degree of sense that that's what would happen in those circumstances. Will every recession or won't there? No one knows. Yeah, uh, I think I, I put it in the category of massively important, but very important difficult to apply in oh, any practical totally. sense so yeah, so i wouldn't say it's right. not important i mean gosh it's super important but yes you know and if you could know it and if you didn't know what it was you know it's all that stuff yeah and then so look this is a very long answer i told you i warned you and this is this is this is the very short version by the way but mm-hmm. when it comes to some of these etfs you know should you shouldn't you if you have a very confident view on which way bond markets are going to go then you should <laughs> and and exactly. and you know but i don't yeah. um yeah and and people who, a lot of people who pretend to know don't seem mm-hmm. to have a great track record. It's just it's just difficult. Yeah. It's really 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 difficult. Um, we don't really have much of a fixed interest market for the quote unquote retail investor in in Australia. Yeah. But there's nothing. I mean, if if I where I would find it interesting individually would be if I could use it and apply it in the same way I could a term deposit. Got some cash. I think I'm going to need it in a couple of years. I don't want to expose it to the equity market mm-hmm. for that time because you know I want to put a deposit on a house or I want to go on a holiday or there's some known expense and it just you know I've, as much as we are proponents of equity markets I don't think any of us would would lock money away for for such a short period of time given given what happens with volatility I'd be tempted to buy a government bond and hold it to maturity for one or two years I mean I, I could see I could see sense in 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 doing that would I lend the U.S. government money for thirty years at zero uh, percent? No, I wouldn't. And I, <laughs> and I ranted on this. I think it was last week as well. I was like, it is amazing on this. Like, literally, I think it's a two hundred trillion dollar mm-hmm. global market. The pension funds, institutions, and the biggest, best, quote unquote, smartest guys in the room, we're 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 actually making that trade. And it just it boggles the mind. So again, it's a good reminder that there's there aren't any adults in control here. Um, but yeah, I, I I wouldn't want to give advice one way or the other because it's just it's a bit too tricky for me. 
no, fair enough. I um, bonds, by the way, traditionally have underperformed shares, but not in all time periods and you know shorter time periods they they act differently. They so they actually you know, a- tend to be well. This is what's also interesting. So the old <laughs> old old sort of. Uh, rule of thumb was the 60-40 mm-hmm. portfolio. 60% oh, yeah. equities, 40% bonds. Mm. And because when bonds fall, equities go up and vice versa, at least, again, historically. What's fascinating in recent history is that correlation is completely broken down. So it goes to show you that these rules of thumbs, these heuristics aren't always terribly reliable. Um, and I actually think that anyone who's got any mm. reasonable amount of time frame ahead of them Putting your money in term deposits or fixed interest securities like bonds is just less volatile, safer, yep. yes, but actually I would say riskier over the long term because they, they're not as protected against inflation and you just you suffer a huge opportunity cost. Correct. So, you know, again, the reality of someone could time the market, they could choose when to be in which and all that kind of stuff. But again, that requires timing of the market, which, as you said many, many times before, is remarkably remarkable. Can I say the, the one, and again, we'll repeat ourselves here, the where it, so, I mean, interest rates are important and bonds really, I would argue that central banks don't actually have a, as much influence as we like to pretend they do. I'd say the bond market is the, is the real one. Have you ever seen that Batman movie where Bane puts his hand on the other guy and says, do you feel in... He goes, I'm in control here. And Bane puts his hand on each other and goes, do you feel in control? I think the global <laughs> bond market is putting its hands on the Federal Reserve saying, are you sure? Because, because at the end of the day, you can't force a free and open market to buy your securities if you're the treasurer. You can't. And I want to do it. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the, the Fed can jawbone. They can jump up and down and say, no, 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 you have to, and this and that, and we're setting interest rate. Well, you're setting overnight mm-hmm. lending rates to banks and everything within that sort of system. You're not, the only other way you can do it, which is what they do end up relying on, and mm-hmm. I feel increasingly likely they're going to have to because of what's happening in, in the bond market, is they'll go, well, we'll buy the bonds. So you have the Federal Reserve buying the bonds off the Treasury, and the Federal Reserve is buying the bonds off the Treasury with money that it just created. It just added some zeros to an electronic register. Um, and, and yeah, you can do that. You can do that for, for a period. But then counterintuitively, that undermines confidence in the bond market as well. So you can't, <laughs> exactly. you can't control uh, – yeah. there are certain things that are outside of your control because at the end of the day, these are just all monkeys making promises to each other. And the second – that, that those promises feel as though that they are not good, mm. um, people won't buy them. And, and you, your left yeah. hand can buy from the right hand and you can, you can make it look as though the emperor's got a beautiful robe on. But bond market <laughs> is massively important in that, in that, that kind of regard. So, so what I said, so and I said at the beginning, it make, makes a huge difference to equity markets. How do I treat it? Well, I, I just, you know, Ben Graham, margin of safety. I don't mm. know where interest rates are going. But I want to try and invest in companies which aren't going to blow up if we go up a quarter of a percent for whatever reason. I don't want to. I don't want a, a company that's so highly leveraged that the slightest unexpected change in global bond market and interest rate dynamics throws me against the wall. Mm. I want. Well, you mentioned the word before with Friday or or today. Um, the the anti fragile business like the Berkshire Hathaway that is so ridiculously resilient and anti fragile that no matter what happens, it's like. Here's the thing: interest rates go up, Buffett wins. Why? Mm. Because he's got a pile of cash there bigger than <laughs> Texas. $120 billion at last count. From Everything him, yeah. goes on sale that he can now deploy. Mm-hmm. He wins. Interest rates go down. He wins because now his equity holdings all go up. 
right? Mm. Interest rates don't do anything. He wins because he's holding great businesses. Now that is a smart guy. That is, and, and I, I want to be, I want to be like Buffett. Be like Buffett is what I'm, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> you know, and, and Buffett, the trouble, yeah. quote unquote, with Buffett's approach mm. is there mm. will be periods, short term periods that feel like longer term periods, where it's sort of like, oh, you made the wrong move. Oh, look at that. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a mistake to hold all that you cash. That's you right, know, that's right. what an idiot. You know, it's like. It, it, it is if you if you look at his approach through the lens of trying to time markets and short term gyrations and these kinds of things. But in terms of someone who's trying to custody and shepherd capital over generations, it is it is super smart. And and yeah, be like Buffett. There's a as you're talking about that, mate. What came to my head is uh, is the 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 smart uh, Alec looking at Buffett saying, "Ha ha! I beat you at this game." Yeah. And Warren Buffett just casually looking over his glasses, saying, "Dude, you're playing the wrong game." <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know exactly. that it's just that's that is like you know I I'm not playing that game. Why, why yeah. would I play that? Dude, game? you're playing checkers. I'm playing right? 4D chess here, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I just uh, there's a great Barons. I think it was Barons headline. Barons a U.S. business publication, 1999. Yeah, famously, what's wrong, Warren? Yes. But, yeah, bemoaning the fact that Warren Buffett had missed out on the tech boom, and it's kind of one of those. You kind of go, okay, fine. You know, when, when people start criticizing Warren Buffett, you know, he's, he's about to be proven exactly right. It's the way this thing tends to work out. The other great he's, Barons he's headline was, was yeah. Amazon with Jeff Bezos on the cover oh, yeah. in 2000. It was Amazon dot bomb. It was like he's they, got, they got both wrong. Clever play on words. It was like, mm, that. <laughs> and it, which is another great reminder. Yeah. Is this like these yeah. are very well regarded publications? It's just like mm-hmm. rem- you've got to constantly pinch yourself. That's stupid people. Yeah. They are, yeah. you know, and it just yep. it, they, 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 it is continually wrong. The smart long term capital management was backed. Look up Google that, by the way. LTCM. You know, yeah. they, they multiple multiple PhDs. Well, I think people Nobel laureates, mate. Oh. Nobel laureates. Inside that business, they were <laughs> they like, blew it up. <laughs> one of them had the combined IQ of of, of ten of me, right? And they blew up, yeah. and they blew yeah. up. And it's just, it's worth keeping that in mind when you're looking at things. Going, why yeah. is everyone making money and I'm not? And this when when mm-hmm. when I feel as though I'm doing something sensible and 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 reasonable, it's just mm-hmm. like you know, Enron looked really great until it didn't. Yeah. Bernie Madoff's yeah. investors felt really smart until they didn't. You know, and for decades too, by the way. Ba- Babcock and Brown was a brilliant yeah. investment until it yeah. wasn't. A yeah. Forge group here in Australia. You know, there there are so I many. Like Forge. Remember Forge? Mm-hmm. There's so yeah, many great examples of it. No, I mean you've got to be careful. That's not to say that. You know, sometimes maybe it is you who's who's you know. If you don't know who the patsy yep. at the table is, maybe it is it is you. So don't assume that you're always right. And you know, <laughs> if, if things aren't working out, it's because the market is dumb. But but don't make the assumption that the market is this all-knowing, all-seeing thing that is always right because it just patently isn't. By the way, mate, most of those examples you've given and most of the investors who lose money in this sort of stuff are the ones who are reaching too far mm-hmm. for returns. Yep. You know, Buffett has had spectacular returns. And frankly, they've come down over time because his capital's growing. That's just, it's a first-class problem to have. Mm. But just, you know, the, the old the old story of the, the, the funds that just have to stay alive to yeah. do really, really well. The, the, yeah. the average fund, if you can get to 10 years old yeah. as a fund, you, you're almost certainly beating the market. And, and survivorship buys by definition. But my point is, they weren't the top fund every one of those 10 years. No. They end up there because they did the simple things right for long enough. If you compound reasonably... At reasonable rates for a long period of time. That's why that's why my largest shareholding is Berkshire Hathaway. I know Berkshire can't do previous returns, right? Mm-hmm. I don't need. I don't need. I, I'd love them. I don't need not twenty percent returns that Buffett used to generate. Mm-hmm. If I can get the market plus a couple of points in Berkshire for a couple of decades, I am going to be very, 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 very. Fun. On 
adjusted for risk. Like if I could yeah, get, if, if you could get 12% per annum over the next yeah. 20 years and I got 12% yeah. per annum over the next 20 years, you did it by investing in Berkshire. I did it by investing in some crypto nonsense NFT rubbish. So right. we both got the same return, but who got the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who got the safer yeah, return right. there? And who, and who, who, yeah, that's right. And that's what, yeah, you can't look at the outcome and say, therefore my investment was smart. You no. know, if, if you take stupid risks and still went up with a positive return, good luck to you, you got lucky, well done. Yeah. Versus like, Berkshire, like, and again, not Berkshire's not the only stock you should buy, but you know, well, you could, but you know, what else? What else do you need? Mm-hmm. Uh, ETFs, frankly, the same sort of return. I'll like, give you the market return, but anyway, that was a great question, by the way. I was a thank really you good for question. that. Sorry for going on it for so well, long. Well, I'm but, yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Ben hits us up with uh, with a, with five points. We're going to try and do reasonably okay. quickly so we can get through them. But they're all individually good points, particularly because he gives a, a rap. Dear Ram and Scott, he says, as few comments followed uh, a few comments followed by a question for the podcast. It's not a machine, he says, but a piece of software. Ben, I take exception to your characterization. <laughs> it is clearly a machine. Your fellow listeners have confirmed to me and to you that it is a podcast machine. I don't know what this heresy is about, mate. You can try and pretend the world is round if you want. The rest of us know it's flat. (laughs) Okay. He says, okay. So it's a short essay now. I look at it. Oh, dear. Number one, great job on the pod. Thank you. As someone who works in the financial services industry, your topics of conversation and the suggestions you provide are right on the money. The effort you both go to to educate and inform is second to none. And a balanced point of view or at least stated position is a rarity these days. And rarely leaves me shouting at the podcast. Ram, you're not ranting well enough, dude. Pick, lift your game up. <laughs> Never shy away from going, no, he's giving you even more raps here. Never shy away from going down a rabbit hole, <laughs> taking a tangent or going over time. The dog really appreciates the extra walk. And as a Gen Xer, I get all of your jokes and references. <laughs> Thank you. Ben, you are now the only listener that gets it, but we appreciate it. Thank you, mate. Number two. Can I just say, can uh, I just say go, you go clearly have to sort of bend the knee and kiss the ring if you want to get your question answered here. So we must have ridiculous amounts of praise before we will we'll answer any question. <laughs> you can draw that inference, Andrew. I couldn't possibly comment. Number two. I'm says, just patent matching here. That's ben. all I'm doing. <laughs> I, 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 we're trying to answer. We ask... I reckon we probably get throughout 75% of the questions we get. Yeah. Uh, and we try to only exclude the ones. I only leave out the ones that we've either answered a lot before or recently mm-hmm. or that are pretty esoteric and kind of don't quite, don't, don't lend themselves to a general audience or a podcast format. Just mm-hmm. so for, for, for listeners, if you are listening to ask a question, we always will appreciate positive feedback and compliments. But uh, yes, if, it, if it's relevant, uh, if it's audio friendly, uh, and if it's kind of general enough that most people will kind of benefit from it, that's, that's what will get you on the pod. Nice. Uh, number two says, Ben, I was finding the Kogan drinking game a bit slow, <laughs> which I thought, thought was a criticism. And then he says, so I have added a new one in which the Berkshire, Buffett, Munger, and a double for Ben Graham, given he started the whole, whole thing, drinking game. Says, you're, you're already on the floor at this stage <laughs> of the podcast. That's what he says. Crap, if you've read this far, there's five drinks already. <laughs> you didn't know that we've already covered most of those, Ben, but yes, you're right. Number three, in a recent mailbag, a listener asked about investing in private equity. You both pretty much came to the conclusion this was a little better than investing in an S&P 500 ETF. Fair enough. You had 10 years of returns to back it up. However, given Ram's recent investment in Bailador, is this mm. not the pot or the Ram, my, my word's not his, calling the kettle black? Isn't Bailador basically a listed private equity fund, given most of its investments are in listed companies? And the one that is listed, Sightminder, is something they held prior to listing. 
A 23% internal rate of return ain't bad, he says. Beats the index. Were we talking about both sides of our mouth, Ryan? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's a fair call. I, yeah, full disclosure, I hold it. I like it. I think I really rate the management, and I think it's fair to characterize them as, as listed private equity. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a relatively small percentage of my holding, so uh, you know, none of that changes really the point. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but, yeah, I, I, I cop that, and, and I, I guess if I could square that circle a little bit more, I, it was more – if we did a proper job arguing against the idea of investing in private equity because you should invest in private equity. Mm. I, 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 think that's, I think that's wrong in the same way that you should invest in, you should have always have a miner there because you should have a miner in company <laughs> or you should always have a retailer. Yeah, like yeah. There, there are some people in our industry that feel as though you just need certain industry exposure for the sake of having industry exposure. Mm. And, and that's where I'm against private equity, for, especially for the, the quote unquote, you know, common person or you're just like, oh, I heard that I should have exposure to this. And I'm like, should you? In Bailador's case, I guess I make the exception was that I'm not investing in it because it's private equity. I'm investing in it because I really rate the management team and their capital allocation skills and the investments that they've made. And that's the reason I'm doing it, not so much because of how you might classify their structure. Does that, does that work? <laughs> It does. I think that's right, mate. I think the thing is, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, – the exceptions always prove the rule. Uh, I would say that I don't invest in listed investment companies, but I own Berkshire shares. I would say, you know, be careful of fund managers um, uh, because of the fees they charge they had to lose to the market. And yet I'm invested in Solpats and Berkshire, which, again, are kind of in listed investment companies slash funds of sorts in very different ways and different things. But, you know, there are they are the exceptions that prove the rule. Conglomerates suck except for Solpats and West Farmers and Berkshire and probably a handful of others. Um, I don't own Bailador. I have recommended it in the past, I think, in one service. Uh, we've talked to uh, the, the guys, David Kirk and who's the other guy? Paul, someone? Help me out. Wilson. Uh, no. Uh, gosh, I've gone uh, blank now. Might be Paul Wilson, actually. Maybe it is. I think it's Paul Wilson. Sorry, Paul. Uh, anyway, so, yes. Um, uh, but, but so, you know, the, it is... Yes, Wilson. Yep. When I want to say... When I, if I had to blindly invest in, if I had to throw a, a private equity, well, you have to throw six figures probably to get in these days. If I had to throw a private, say, here's hundred grand, um, invest for me. Hope you got to give me some good results in ten years. That's the sort of that that's a generic private equity investment. If I could invest in, you know, with Bailador, for example, and I like their strategy, and I like their investments, and I like the people, and I like what they're trying to do, then it's a different thing. It's frankly different to investing in Macquarie Group. As, a, as an investment in my mind, because mm. it's, a, it's a jockey play, right? It just is. Um, what, what's the Macquarie model? I can tell you what it is now, but it would not have been no resemblance to what it was 10 years ago. And in 10 years' time, I think it would probably be very different again. And you can absolutely choose not to do it uh, and say, uh, you know, uh, Macquarie was tired for me. I, I recommended it um, oh, two years ago now, probably. After, after for years having said, you know what? I, I, I can't forecast its, its earnings. I can't. I don't know what's going to be doing as a business. That's still my view, by the way. I ended up deciding that I believed uh, that uh, the the incentives in place and the structure I meant I was more likely than not to make money, but you can't see the future, right? It's really hard. So uh, yes, it is talking to both sides of our mouths to some degree. Uh, I don't own Frontier. Uh, Frontier. I'll get to that in a second. I don't own um, uh, Bailador, uh, but if you did, you would buy it because you liked what the business is doing. Right now, by the way, very different story because even though they, as you say, they held site minor prior to listing. We didn't say we bought it at the IPO either. So you're getting it at a price 
uh, with businesses you know about. So you kind of you're buying the portfolio of businesses and, and the management team. Um, point four, you have previously spoken about the advantage of the of, <laughs> that the individual investor, dare I say retail investor, says, uh, says Ben, <laughs> has over the big end of town. There is a great YouTube clip by the Swedish investor that has a story about this called Why You Can't Beat the Investment Professionals. A way you can, sorry, a Wall Street story, end quote, that your listeners may find interesting and goes to the heart of what you two are helping individual investors do. So there's a plug. I haven't watched it, but I'm sure Ben's right. Yeah, nice. Last last point, five. After years of listening to you two prattle on, means that positively, <laughs> I finally bought shares in a couple of companies within my super. It is a wrap. No need for an SMSF to do this. Anyway, persistence pays. It's all been ETFs, LICs, and some managed funds until now as well as the interest in investigating various companies. I must say, actually listening to the investor presentations has been more insightful than the actual balance sheets and cash flows. It has allowed me to leave the rest of my portfolio alone, as I now have somewhere else to direct my energies. Us boys always need something to play with, he says. <laughs> Which brings me to my question. We got there, Ben. In the search for my next investment, I came across Frontier Digital Ventures, which I mentioned before. It cropped up on some small cap manager lists, and I also saw the full comment on it, and there was some chat on Strawman. While the company is now finally generating some positive cash flow, although not on an EBITDA basis, what would Munga say about that? This is damn it, drink, in brackets. <laughs> I'm finding it really hard to work out what the future cash flows may look like. There have been so many acquisitions that have powered revenue growth, the normal process of looking back at previous cash flows and projecting forward doesn't seem to apply. How do you assess and potentially value these early stage growth companies? There is the prospect for more revenue via increased transactions and expenses seem to have stabilized, but there's no revenue guidance. And given Frontier has previously kept acquiring other companies, the current Frontier isn't really the same as the earlier one. And let's not mention the share placements, he says, that would have been dilutive for existing shareholders with no chance to participate. There appears to be an experienced management team. There is strong founder alignment with shareholders, which gives me some confidence. It could be at a turning point in starting to generate positive cash flows and the share price is down enormously. Is there any way to readily assess a company like this? Or is it just a case of sucking your thumb and guessing which way the wind is blowing? Straw on, he says. <laughs> so tell us what Frontier is, mate, and then let's talk about the company. Frontier, you know what, sorry? yeah, I do. We, we actually spoke to Sean D. Gregorio, the CEO oh, yes. and the founder in December of last year. Um, so it's an interesting business. They own a portfolio of online marketplaces, mm -hmm. but these are all in emerging markets. You know, um, so think of the businesses that have done really well here, like the car sales and the real estate dot coms and that kind of stuff. Well, they're they're trying to sort of own that space, but in developing markets. Um, so, okay, oh, gosh, it's a big run up here. Um, the business models are phenomenally attractive at scale. I mean, we've, we've seen that. When you, when you look at the really big successful tech companies, they tend to be huge and big and successful because they, they have these things called network effects. I mean, if I'm, if I'm gonna look at a house in Australia, and that's literally every Australian. Um, I'm going to go to either domain or realestate.com. Like, name me a third one. Yeah. Like, name yeah, me correct. the third one. Like, mm -hmm. I, and if you can, name me the fourth one, right? Like, a natural monopolies, duopolies there. Be because if I'm a seller, I'm going to go to where all the buyers are. If I'm mm -hmm. a buyer, I'm going to go to where all the sellers are. They're extraordinarily dominant moats and very powerful moats and lead to very powerful feedback loops. Um, the, the difficulty is 
that they are very hard to establish. And so in establishing them, you need to often spend big up front. You need to acquire, we don't need to, but it helps to acquire, not mm. so much because the company you're acquiring might have better tech or even necessarily better branding, but they've got clients and you, you're, trying, you're trying to get to that stage where you have that, that network effect. Um, and the tricky thing about not just these kinds of companies, but any early stage tech company or any, forget tech, just early stage companies is, you know, I, I could just have a, a company that makes, maybe I'm a brewer making ginger beer, right? It's like, well, I've, mm. I've got to spend, I've got to buy the vat up front. I've got to, you know, I've, I've got to buy the ingredients up front. Money is spent today with the expectation that that capital capital being a special class of good that is used to make other goods. Um, I need that for tomorrow. And and right. so these guys have an ambitious plan. A lot of the bigger companies aren't interested in these other markets because they're too small and they've got a good thing going on where, where they are. Well, they sort of look at Brazil and Vietnam and other places like that, that, you know, people have the internet there. People aren't any different from where we are here. They want they want a, the convenience of opening up an app and, and doing it. And in fact, um, they've got, I, I'm going to go blank because I haven't looked at it closely for a while, but I think they do have the leading or close to leading mm. sort of services in, in all of these areas. Yeah. So what can be really difficult here is that you've got to, you can't often rely on historical financials. I bet you, I bet you, um, I'm trying to give a good example here. I bet you Cochlear in its first three years, five years, maybe even 10 years of operation had really bad financials. Mm. CSL, right? If it wasn't out, spun out of a government agency. Well, as a government agency at the time, I'm sure the only reason it got up was because it had all this free government yeah. money and, and capital sort of to, to deploy it itself. That's just how it is. And this is where I love, I love early stage growth companies because I think too often people go, ah, no earnings, it's bad. Ah, look at all the debt that they've spent. Ah, the cash flow is negative, it's bad. And it's like, well, <laughs> that is really, really big red flags for established companies that are going in the other direction. But it's unavoidable and necessary and just how it is for any other kind of company. Anyone who started a business knows that's the case. Now, that doesn't mean that just don't worry about financials, it doesn't matter. But I think if, if you're in early stage companies, that's just par for the course. What you need to do, I think, is you need to have a look at, you need to be able to tease apart some of these numbers and look at maybe more the unit economics than the overall economics. So what you would hope with a business like Frontier Digital Ventures, they've got all this staff there that are working, they've got an accounts department, they've got a, sell they've got a sales team, all of this kind of stuff that hopefully can service a much, much, much larger number of users. But I'm more interested in what is the client acquisition cost versus the long lifetime value. And so this is a well-known metric in, in, in tech, you know, L LTV divided by CAC is, is what it's mm -hmm. called. And if that's a positive metric, it means that I'm going to scale really nicely. Like you look at zero in the early days, right? And I was at the full with you at the time, and I remember how much grief the, the, wasn't our our services, but the boys who you know Matt and Joe who recommended it got at the time because the, the financials looked terrible. But they had mm -hmm. the the astute observation that actually the unit economics are incredibly attractive, and as long as new people keep coming on and it's attractive to people for people like, like on each each 
individual user added is accretive, then you can draw a line and it's going to pass a point where it becomes really, really attractive. So there's a long answer, but what I'm saying here is, is not to say invest or don't invest in frontier digital ventures, but it's to look at it from that lens and think, can it scale? And I would say if they are the dominant player in those spaces, and if those unit economics are attractive, and if you feel that these play, and these are, these are, these are risky parts of the world often to operate in, but if you feel as though they are going to sort of further develop over time, um, I, I think you can probably make a case for it. I haven't looked at the share prices. You know, obviously, price is what you pay, value is what you get. So, so maybe it's great value, maybe it's terrible value, even if the business has a bright future. But that's, that's the lens that I would look at it through. And I think what you're seeing with not just, and I can speak very much from experience here, is that it's not just Frontier Digital Ventures that's had a pretty ordinary year, but all kinds of growth companies, because you've 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 seen a you've seen the 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 access to capital change, and that's very important for an early stage company, and you've seen the market sentiment change. The market has no, we don't see it with the big indices because mm. a lot of the big resource companies and banks are sort of like masking what's going on underneath the hood. Take the U.S. market and take away the top five performing companies, and it's a really ordinary performance, right? Um, but in, in small cap land, the sentiment has just turned. And it's actually why I think it's a really exciting point. Right? I think there's just so many attractive opportunities in small cap growth at the moment because you had all of, you've had this change in sentiment and you've had all of these terrible things fall that should have fallen and never deserved to trade on the multiples that they did. But all these babies have been thrown out with the bathwater. Maybe FDV is one of, sorry, Frontier Digital Ventures is one of them. Um, Go, don't 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 think because the price is down that the 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 business is is doing poorly. I'll have a quick squeeze while you have some thoughts in, mate. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, it was a good answer. Mate. I had a really good answer. I think um, what I, I Frontier is another business that I've recommended in the past, and it's a really interesting business because it's not a current recommendation of any of my services, by the way. Um, it's it's a business where you will see. Uh, the two parallel, not off, not always intersecting, but hopefully in this case intersecting, uh, issues of the business model and the execution. Frontier is on one hand taking some really short parts because it's taking, as Andrew's already said, the models it's seen work anywhere else in the world and saying, we know how this plays out or has played out or can play out. We know that increased adoption of the internet. We know that these incredible marketplace businesses have extraordinary value and extraordinary worth. I mean, I mean worth for the consumers, right? Imagine trying to find a house these days. I'm old enough, Ram, some of our listeners will remember, some won't. Remember getting the City Morning Herald and it was actually in two separate sections because they couldn't fold the entire paper in half. <laughs> so there was there was literally, and, and they were, sometimes they were, I've got to say, I'm just drooling with the fingers now, well more than an inch thick. If you yeah. put those two sections on top of each other, it was yeah. more than an inch, and you couldn't—they couldn't have one section because you couldn't—you literally couldn't fold the paper. Mm-hmm. And so there was these, and, and that was the classifieds, right? Largely, I mean, lifestyle and other things, but it was pages and pages of houses, and pages and pages of jobs, and it was just an extraordinary, extraordinary business. Anyway, the internet's destroyed all that, or, or take, you know, take re, re, reinvented it, maybe taking it online, uh, and so we know how incredibly powerful that can be in, in the developed world. And Frontier is simply saying, hey, if we get there first. If we can, so you've got to do a few things. You've got to get there first or first-ish. 
there's two big housing classifieds businesses, but largely one of every other category because housing is so expensive as a, as a thing you can afford to have a couple of different players and you, as a seller, you want to list in all the places that, it's, that you know, people might look. If it's a job, if it's a, 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 a car, uh, you're going you're gonna to go to probably just one, the, the one winner. Mm. And so Frontier is saying, okay, we've seen Seek and realestate.com and Domain and car sales. And if we can do that, then we'll do really well. If we get there first, if the market grows the way we hope it might grow, and if it can do that in a time frame that gives us a return on that capital investment Andrew's already talked about. Because if it takes 10 years, it never happens. So there have been businesses before. iCar Asia was one. iProperty was another. Oh, yeah. These companies, yeah. these companies never really got there. One was, were they both taken over? I think they were. Mm. Or taken private camera anyway. Mm. Um, yeah, these businesses were trying to do exactly the same thing. Now, under their own steam, neither prospered. They may well now as, as parts of other businesses or whatever, or maybe they're private and are, are prospering. As publicly, as publicly businesses, they never prospered. Because they, they the, 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 I've said before many times, if Steve Jobs was born in 19, anything up to about 19, I don't know how old he was, but you know, if, if the iPhone idea had come along any point less than five years before it did, Jobs is a nobody and the iPhone never happens or it happens by someone else at some other later point. He happened to be exactly at the right time when Wi-Fi and 3G and Gorilla Glass and other things were available to make the iPhone. Without that, it doesn't happen. He's, it, Apple's still an iPod company, right? Which would be fine. Um, the, so, so Frontier's challenge is, are they in the right places? Are they in the lead? Can they continue to be in the lead? And can they be there, to use a surfing analogy, on the board when the wave comes through? Because you can paddle out on a board and sit there all day in a bay and nothing is going to happen. Mm. And in that case, have you got the right board? Have you got the right cozies? Have you got the right... Have you watched all the online tutorials? Have you been taught by someone who can... Yep, absolutely. Can you catch a wave? Not if there's no waves to catch. Or, to, let's, let's torture the analogy, if you're on another break where there's so many people, you simply can't get on the wave. Or you can't get on the, the right point of the wave because people are already there. So you've got to be first. You've got to have the right business model, which I think they have. You've got to be first. And you've got to be... You've got to hope the wave comes before you run out of money. And so that's the frontier story. Now, they diversify beautifully across different geographies and different what they call verticals, so different types of classifieds. I, I do think they've got a pretty good chance of being successful. The share price has fallen meaningfully because, we've talked about this before, the price of money's gone up. We talked about it you know, in this episode, but, but before we're talking about you know, tech companies are worth less because you've got to wait years for profits. And every year you wait, when the risk-free rate is 5% on US government bonds rather than 2%, the cost of waiting is ever more expensive. So that's where Frontier is now. I haven't looked at him in, in a long time, Ram, particularly closely. I can't, I can't advance an investment view. Uh, I'm just having a quick my, look now. No. Yeah, I, go, mate, go ahead. Uh, the last thing I'll just say, my, my, my specific question would simply be, can they get there quickly enough to justify the current price? And I don't know the answer. They might also run out of money and have to raise more capital, in which case you get diluted even further, as, as Ben asked or mentioned. So it, I don't know. I, uh, I don't have a view, but if I was going to look at it, I'd say the right model, uh, right expertise. Uh, they seem to be in leading positions in those markets. Maybe the market doesn't grow quickly enough or adopt their, their sites quickly enough to make money. That's the question I'd be trying to answer for myself. Not, frankly, Ben, I wouldn't look at any of the historical numbers at all. I'd be looking at a, you know, a business unit by business unit and say, are these companies in a, these units in a position to do well from here in a time frame that offers me a return on my money? Yeah, I mean, so the most recent results they made thirty one million dollars in revenue in the first mm -hmm. half. Yep. Uh, that compares to twenty nine in 
the previous year, 21, and then eight, and then seven, and then five. So, and then, <laughs> and then if you look at the full years, obviously we don't have the full year yet for FY23. Yeah. They've got a different reporting cycle, but you know, there's this, there's this, in 2017, the whole company made 9 million in revenue. And last year, last full year, it made 59 million. It's growing at the top line, right? It's, it's okay, tick, that's interesting. Um, but what, what hasn't what has also been evident is scrolling further down is that the the loss is expanding as well so and just to make things really complicated and get into the weeds there's the operating profit which includes the way that their associates their their subsidiaries are accounted mm. for uh, that's a whole other thing but on that in that metric there their ebitda went from a loss last <laughs> year to a 1 and a half million dollar gain this year so potentially they're passing that inflection point. The thing that I guess would worry me, and you've got to do much more, and this is, this is research on the fly, right? So you take this with a huge grain of salt. But opening up the September quarter cash flow statement, you know, they brought in $16.5 million in cash receipts, but after all of their expenses, they're still bleeding $1.5 million. Yeah. Um, and they, oh, they've got $28 million left in the bank. So there's a bit of a runway left, but that's, that is the question I would say. The sales is there. The traction is there. The revenue is coming in. The amount of revenue that is coming in is growing. This is all good. I'd also need to look at the share count because maybe the revenue is coming because it's all acquired. Yeah, that's, and, and that's, on a, that's part of the, the acquisition of the problem. Yeah. You know, yeah. These are the things you've got to, got to look at. But I mean, high level view here, and you've, just, you've already nailed it. It's just like, well, business seems to be getting bigger overall. It's just whether they can do that effectively on a per share basis and then make that magic pivot to cash flow prop. Uh, positivity, become self-funded, and then unlock that beautiful, beautiful thing called operating leverage, which whereas the fixed costs don't grow anywhere near as fast as the, the revenue growth. And then you get this ongoing, steady and attractive revenue growth, but much, much, much better profit growth. Mm. And all of a sudden the market will sit up and go, ah, oh, you did it. Now, maybe they won't and, and, and most companies don't, but if they can, That'll be something pretty special, and that's that's what I would that's what I would be trying to spend my time trying to figure out. Yeah. I like it, but I reckon that's a wonderful way to finish this podcast. We just got a little bit long. We did have permission from Ben not to cut it short, so uh, we've taken that. Taken with, that uh, liberty, yep. Correct, taken liberty forever. Actually, after this, now all Ben's fault. If you uh, think our <laughs> podcast going too long, you can blame Ben, dear listener. Uh, mate, uh, that was a fun podcast. Got some great questions. Got through some really really interesting content. I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, again, as I said on Friday, please do send us your questions, comments, and feedback. We love hearing from our listeners. Just so it makes us feel like we're not just talking to each other and into these strange microphones. We, we'd like kind of knowing it's getting out into the, the rest of the world uh, thank you for listening by the way I don't do this very often um, please tell your friends uh, tell people that you hope might get something out of it if you're listening then hopefully it's because you're appreciating it or you just really 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 hate listening which frankly an hour and a quarter in uh, hey good luck good on you if that's what you're doing I wouldn't but you can uh, but yeah if you get something out of it I, I, like obviously we want more listeners we like feeling popular and all that sort of stuff but uh, if it's helping you maybe it might help somebody else as well so do consider if that is you and you wouldn't mind doing us a, a solid uh, letting some friends or family know uh, people you hate I don't care uh, that they might enjoy the podcast that's also pretty useful from nice. us until next Friday full on cheers the Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.